Welcome to Between the Rows, where you get to hear the stories behind the stories in Canada's leading farm publications. Hello and welcome to Between the Rows. I'm Ed White, your host this week. Today we're going to hear about how farmers might need to work towards integrated solutions for increasingly complicated problems. Laura Rance interviews Martin Entz about that. I'm going to chat with Spencer Myers about what's new in the realm of soil mapping. And we'll get a markets update with Phil France Warkington of Markets Farm. But first, think about who's the best educated person you regularly deal with on the farm. It might just be your agronomist. Would it surprise you to hear that they might need to be retrained or upgraded more than almost anybody else? I spoke with Guy Ash of Pestle Instruments about the increasing number of digital aids that farmers are relying upon, but which they'll need help managing and the role that agronomists play with that. So you were saying that one of the problems with uh, all the various digital systems uh, that are coming towards the farm uh, quite quickly and which many people are working on, uh, one of the challenges for farmers is going to be integrating them and finding a way to actually take advantage of, of what these systems offer. And that that might require some re-education, retooling, mm-hmm. or just uh, education from the start. How do you see that uh, coming out, and what kind of a challenge is that to an actual real-world farm? Yeah, it's, a, I think, a real problem today for not only the people on-farm and the agronomy people helping them on-farm, because the technology is moving rapidly in terms of what's happening and the deployment of it. Uh, with that comes challenges because you're talking about new types of tools that aren't traditionally used on farm that deal with software development and you know communications and SIM cards as well as the, the agronomy that can be done because of an actionable tool. So you may have a soil moisture probe. Well, what does it mean? What does it provide me? And how do I use that on farm? Well, to do that, then there is some re-education that has to happen with that and explain it. So in today's world, many of the universities are big organizations and it's hard for them to move and adjust to the new realm because the business world of this is moving fast. I would say the colleges are a little more apt because they can put programs in place. So where I see it is almost like a digital agronomy program that really combines the the part of the technology science side and the agronomy side and as a person working in the field you're going to need to have that because you've got to understand how the thing works and if there's issues with it to deal with it and what does the data mean that comes off that device for the problem that you're looking at how do I use it what's my actual thing I want to do with it so uh, there's a retooling that's going on and many of the, the colleges and universities are gearing up to adjust to do that uh, for people that are going through the programs. The other issue is the people that are out there, kind of old like me, that need to retool and be educated all the time. And that is really, I think, a push now uh, for e-learning. So I really see the only way that you can reach out to the vast number of people we're talking about is to do an e-learning platform where you have curriculum and content on the issues that you're dealing with. You know, it could be on disease management or it could be on communication issues, you know, SIM cards. But all that content has to be there, uh, easy to use, short videos, uh, documents, and some type of certification program that you go through and you get certified that, oh, I know how to work that device and use that device because, you know, Realistically, uh, there's no one company that can 
have the amount of support through phone to answer phone calls for this stuff. It is certainly an e-learning type platform. So that's a business-driven application, uh, more so than the university approach. So those people that are out there that need to have a short course or be tooled would, would come in and get certified and trained and learn on, on the technology as well as the agronomy from it. And from the farmers and agronomists you speak to, do people realize that they're going to need to be you know, re-educated, retooled in this, or are they just thinking, hey, there's another new app, I can use that, and then I'll plug in this system and take advantage of that? Or are they understanding that bringing this together might require a bit more focused education? Yeah, that's a, a complex question because it's not today, you know, you've got an app for everything. And that is the problem in this space that there are too many ways and too many people pushing something to a farmer and I've got 15 or 20 apps that I need to look at to solve my problem. That's not a good thing either. So the big companies and companies are working are how do you synthesize that data into an answer in one type of solution. So that has to happen to make it efficient uh, for the end user. Otherwise it's, you know, if, if I have to look at so much I'll never get my job done. The other thing I can see into the future is almost an, a digital agronomy type person that is managing a set of farms or fields and looking at the, the data and the, the kind of like a stock market person where you have green, yellow things flashing. You know, they're, they're going to have to be able to see, oh, okay, it's okay here, it's not so okay over here, and then advise the people who are doing the, the boots on the ground to go and deal with the problem. So there, there may be somebody that's there, just my thought, that actually has to look at this flow of data, uh, come up with an actionable item out of it that talks to an agronomist and so forth. So, yeah, I don't know if the farmer's thinking that far out, but certainly they tell me, you know, there's a lot of technology, how do I learn it? How do I get trained on it? I don't want as many apps as I have today. Can you, and I often hear the thing, can you combine your data with this app? And this app, you know, put it into one. So those are very common questions I hear. Well, thanks very much for talking to us about this today. Yep, no problem. I love to. That was Guy Ash of Pestle Instruments speaking to me from Farm Forum Event. So I was at Farm Forum Event uh, last week, and so were a lot of other farmers. Uh, there were also a lot of uh, journalists like Spencer Myers, who's also with Glacier Farm Media. And uh, he's joining me now. So, Spencer, what did you find most interesting at Farm Forum event? There were a lot of really interesting sessions. Uh, you were there as well, and you were the MC of the event. Uh, so you know kind of exactly the, the lineup that I was able to see. Um, a lot of the conversations seemed to revolve around precision agriculture, um, a little bit on regenerative farming, and to be honest, a lot of it kind of around systems management. So I don't know about you, but I was able to sit in on some of the, the breakout sessions. And there were a few that were really interesting to me personally. Uh, I sat in on Corey Wilness's presentation, and he gave uh, a talk to a bunch of producers about the 10 myths in precision ag. Um, I won't go into too much detail about that because I actually talked about this on last week's episode. Um, so if anyone wants to hear more about Corey's presentation and kind of what I thought of that, you guys can listen to last week's episode of Between the Rows. Um, but that was one of the sessions that it was really, really interesting. And it was just kind of giving farmers 
advice on the data that they're collecting. Um, and I guess I can go into this a little bit. He, he was trying to be pretty careful. He wasn't saying what data that farmers should or shouldn't collect, but he was stressing the point that they should be asking why they're collecting certain sets of data um, and maybe learning more about what those sets of data actually do to help you make a decision. He warned that there's a lot of marketing, there's a lot of hype in the industry right now, um, specifically in the, I'm using air quotes, precision egg uh, sectors right now because... There, a lot of it is new technology, um, maybe just a new sensor or something, and a lot of it, um, in his words, um, can be kind of unfounded. So he said he would be very careful uh, and very diligent about kind of learning about the systems and, and the programs available without necessarily just jumping right in the deep end of the pool. Um, so that was kind of what Corey had to say. Uh, he's the president of Croptimistic Technologies, so you can learn all about their stuff uh, there. And another uh, of the most interesting sessions uh, that I sat in was the SWAT maps uh, with uh, Wes Anderson. So SWAT, S-W-A-T, that means the soil, water, and topography maps. Um, and so I don't know if you know anything about this, Ed, but it's uh, it's a type of map that combines the soil, the water, and the topography map all into one crop map. Uh, basically, it's um, using complementary sets of data to help you learn more about this specific piece of land that maybe you're managing. That's a good thing to bring together all these different individual things that affect your crop and your land. And there are so many different systems that measure one thing without relating it to the others. Yeah, And I think that's what farmers know is that really the stuff without combining it together, it's not as simplistic as the things that people often try to sell to farmers. Yeah, and that, that was a big um, theme of, of some of these presentations is learning about the data sets, why you're collecting it, and what decisions you can make using these different sets of data, and, the, and then the complementary sets as well. So I'll talk a little bit about one of, one of the key points that I, I didn't think that people would mix this up, but it really it does make sense how they could make this mistake. But apparently a lot of people mix up topography and, um, and elevation. Um, they're two very different measurements, but you can kind of understand how you might think that they're maybe the same thing. Um, topography shows you the mid slopes, the high zones, the low zones. Um, it's a much more detailed look at a field or an, maybe not a field, but a specific area. Whereas elevation strictly just shows you your height relative to sea, uh, to the sea level. So they're just not the same measurement. So maybe if you're making a decision and you should be looking at a topography map, but you're looking at an elevation map, that's a big mistake that you could make. Not that I'm saying any specific farmers are making that mistake, but um, some, of these presenta- um, some of these presentations were just warning against, you really got to know what these sets of data are actually um, meant to be used for. And yeah, just going by big averages or medians can really obscure the differences going on in your fields. Yes. Um, Now, I actually, uh, I've studied agriculture, but uh, I hadn't heard of this um, specific term, and that's resolution uh, in terms of your soil maps. Your resolution can be kind of compared to maybe a TV screen or or maybe a laptop screen, whereas uh, the higher number of pixels that you have in a screen, the higher the resolution it'll be. Um, Now, when you're looking at a crop map or a soil map or whatever, a field map, let's just say, you've got a very specific area that you're looking at. That field is a is an actual size. It has a unit of measurement. Now, if your implement, let's say your um, your seeding, your drill might be eighty to ninety uh, feet wide. If you're using a drill that's maybe thirty feet wide, 
The drill that has 30 feet versus 90 feet will have more passes in that field, therefore technically more pixels or um, more detail in the frame. As the smaller implement goes, you'll have a higher number of rows, more passes than if you had a wider implement, and this is called the resolution. Now, this is only really applicable maybe if you're looking at variable rate applications, um, looking at, you know, um, I would say uh, kind of diagnostic problems for your crop. Um, that might not be what you're going for. You might be trying to go for the kind of the law of averages, trying to use, and maybe your machinery is just, you have a 70 foot drill, you're not ready to buy a shorter drill. So it's not saying that farmers are doing anything wrong, but it's just learning about how to look at your, your field maps. Um, and resolution was a big one that I hadn't been very familiar with. So I was, I was interested to learn more about that. And you're also interested in uh, something else, uh, which you got some time to uh, to take in, which was the uh, Harrington Seed Destructor. Yeah, another one of the breakout sessions was breaking down the uh, the Harrington Seed Destructor, the Harrington Seed Destructor, uh, and how it's used um, both on a research perspective and from a farming perspective. Um, so we talked with uh, Brianne Tideman, and she's a she's a research scientist with AgriFood Canada, um, and that's the federal government essentially. So she lives in Saskatchewan, and uh, she has also been um, doing test plots out in Alberta, and um, the other half of the presentation was given by a farmer named Josh Laid, who's an Australian who actually moved to Canada to just experience grain farming in a different part of the world. And he's been a farmer that's adapted this technology. Um, and now the Harrington Seed Destructor, it's not necessarily brand new, um, but they were uh, showing farmers how it's used to um, bring down the number of weed seeds in the seed bank. Um, it's, a, it's a huge problem, obviously, kind of in anywhere where there's maybe large field and commercial ag. Um, and uh, we have a seed bank in the soil. So every year through combining, through just growing season, the number of weed seeds in the soil usually goes up because more, more plants grow, those plants mature, the seeds fall into the ground. For a long time, there wasn't a way to necessarily manage that. And uh, I liked a quote that Josh Laid had. Uh, he says that the combine is the best weed seeder in the world um, because it's, it's just well known that the combine just absolutely spreads weed seeds that are coming out of the back of the combine. Um, a lot of those seeds either grow into weeds in the next year or they go into back they, or they go back into the seed bank. Um, so the Harrington Seed Destructor is an actual physical mill that you can tow behind or it's attached in certain uh, combines, um, mostly John Deere models, I believe. And it's a physical mill that just crushes the seed. Um, and now it, that, that obviously uh, comes with some certain managing um, techniques that you have to apply to your combine. Um, and it's obviously not free. Uh, it, it, it comes with a, with a price tag. It takes a little bit of horsepower off your combine. There are lots of things to keep in mind, but the whole point of the presentation was to show um, people um, how it's working in a research stand and how it's working um, in, in the commercial ag stands. Um, and they also stress that it's a multi-year process for some of these tools. So you're not going to buy a tool, a tool or um, like a mill or anything like this and notice immediate results because while yes you're taking down the number of seeds that are going into the soil this year you didn't have this maybe last year so there's still a high number of weed seeds in that seed bank that are going to mature that are going to grow 
And they really stressed that it takes about three to five years to start noticing a difference in their test trials. Um, and they do that through using uh, both yield maps, yield potential maps, as well as real-time satellite data to see the amount of um, our organic matter and plant matter that's physically growing in certain plots with and without the, the destructor. So it was really interesting to learn about that. And uh, other than that, there weren't... Um, many uh, pieces of machinery that were highlighted, but that was that would be definitely the takeaway for me from the show. Yeah, and uh, what I picked up from Farm Forum event uh, both this year and last year was farmers like theoretical information. They also like to hear how you can apply all these situations to real-world farming actually out in the field, not just yes. what might work, but what are we seeing when we actually try to make work in real farm fields? Yep. And Josh Lade, the, the farmer that I just mentioned, he he gave a really great um, presentation um, showing um, real data just from his farm. And the nice part about his sets of data is that he just he just happens to have two combines with the Harrington Seed Destructor and two combines without. So he's already getting that direct comparative data to see what, how it's working, how it's not working. Um, and he was pretty honest about letting us know about some of the headaches and stuff uh, that that comes along with adapting some of these tools as well. So um, if you guys want to learn more about that, we'll have some stuff coming out in the Manitoba Cooperator very soon. Well, thanks very much, Spencer, for uh, sharing this with us today. Thanks for having me, Ed. Spencer Myers is a reporter with uh, Manitoba Cooperator and for Glacier Farm Media. Farmers face an increasing number of complicated problems, from herbicide-resistant weeds to club root to restrictions on pesticides. How can farmers employ systemic solutions to keep up with these growing problems? Glacier Farm Media's Laura Rance caught up with the University of Manitoba's Martin Enns to discuss the challenge. Uh, Martin, you spoke to a room full of farmers this morning about how uh, the landscape for agronomy is changing and how it's changed. And when I think back about some of the major fundamental shifts we've had in how we farm on the prairies. We've had mechanization, we've had the development of um, herbicides that completely changed how we managed weeds on farms. And those were revolutionary changes uh, when they took place. But it seems to me that with the zero till movement and now with some of the regenerative principles that are taking shape, that we're involved in a more evolutionary shift in thinking in agriculture. And I wanted to find out from you just the role that farmers play in that change? Are they the drivers? Are they the receivers? How, how does that take place on the farms on the Canadian prairies? Well, from my experience, you know, looking at it from the outside, um, I, I think uh, you're right in, in saying that the farmers are taking a more active role in driving that process. Um, they, um, and they, I think there's a number of reasons for that. Farmers are well-informed, uh, they're well-educated, um, they, uh, they, they, uh, and they're interested. Uh, they want to see survival of their farms, and th- they want to see their sector thrive. And also, uh, from my, from from how I see it, is some of those revolutionary changes aren't as effective as they used to be. And you know, herbicide resistance is one example. And I, I think it's a really good one. It's it's the big wake up call for everybody. So farmers are going, okay, um, how are we going to deal with this? I guess I better get involved because I can't just go and get another herbicide. Uh, I now have to complement my herbicides with other strategies like a better rotation or uh, a different enterprise on my farm or something like that. So I see I see it the same way and I would agree with your assessment that that, that is a shift and that the farmers are now participating in that innovation. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time working on 
on those alternative systems, be it organic or sort of, you know, early days of no-till, uh, the crop livestock regenerative sector, and the involvement of the farmers in those conversations, the way the conferences are organized, having a lot of farmer panels and not so many external experts, uh, I think it really signals that farmers are very interested in being involved, and and they're the, they're they're generating some solutions. So, um. have you seen a shift in the uh, kinds of questions that students are coming into the system asking? Okay, um, I love students that know something about beef production because they are naturally more ecological. They understand how a rumen works, even though they think they don't. Um, they actually know, um, you know, what feed quality matters. That is exactly the principle that you need uh, to build soil health. It's exactly, it's a bacterial fungal process in the soil, maybe more bacterial in the rumen. Um, the, um, uh, so those students are good. The, the students, because we're a highly urbanized country now, um, a lot of students are coming in with questions that need to be, we need to actually help them work on their questions. So they can come in with their passion and their sentiment, great. They're passionate about sustainability, great. Uh, now let's, so we need to spend more time on the front end doing experiential learning. And what I've found is that, um, that their generation is more open uh, to that than maybe my generation was. We were the burn it down generation that that's a quote from Naomi Klein but she even says the next generation is more tempered so they're more they're interested in information they want to be have things proven to them and once so so I think we need to help them with their questions but we don't want to stop their questions and then uh, they're interested in change and um, I mean I think the, the the climate strikes we see uh, around the world is a, is, a, is a big signal uh, and we need to we need to engage those people in developing solutions um, so, yeah, to get back to your question, I think the students have changed in terms of their interest and motivation, but they're also a little less practically rooted in agriculture, and we also have to address that. And that message has to be balanced, so that we don't just give them the organic message, we don't just give them the alternative message, the GMO message, whatever, but we do that in a balanced way. Do you see the system evolving in a way that we will end up somewhere in the middle? I mean, we've got these uh, spectrums. We've got, you know, no-till, uh, high-input agriculture on one side and the organic on the other. Do you see some meeting of the minds in the middle? Um, I, I think, uh, you know, Ken Giller, who I talked about this morning, he, he says, what is conventional agriculture? It's constantly evolving. So, um, you know, I think conventional agriculture will evolve uh, much more into an ecological model. I don't think we have a choice. Um, and I think farmers are going to have a lot of fun doing it. I do believe that organic, uh, because it has a value proposition, will always be uh, on the, you know, on the table. Uh, and we see farmers like uh, Lundberg Farms in California and Craker Farms in Manitoba, who have about a third of their operation as organic. I see that as very healthy. Um, but for the bulk of agriculture, um, I, I, I would hope that it would move more to what we call regenerative practices. Um, and I guess time will tell about what um, government policy allows, what uh, education allows, what the industry sees as opportunities. Um, but when I look at, you know, the cover crop sector, for example, uh, and to see how that industry, how that farmer engagement is going, uh, that, that, uh, based on that, I would say 
we're, we're moving to something in the middle, like you say. Uh, so conventional agriculture is evolving. Uh, and, and in some cases, resource scarcities will drive that, like irrigation water, uh, climate change. Uh, it's, it, we're going to have to have a more resilient system. That was Glacier Farm Media's Laura Rance talking with Martin Entz of the University of Manitoba. Next, we get a report on the markets from Phil Franz Workington. So there have been a couple of big reports out this week. Uh, I understand StatsCan uh, has shown us a bit of a glimpse of the future. What are you seeing uh, before us, according to them? Yeah, a glimpse of the uh, future through the lens of the past, I suppose. They, uh, they put out their production survey estimates for the year and um, came out with... Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, a little bit, a little bit surprising. They pegged the canola crop. They lowered their estimate from uh, in September. They were back then expecting 19 point something uh, million tons. Uh, a lot of traders had been expecting that maybe it'll up it a bit, while others were of the opinion that you know it was a pretty crappy harvest. The uh, production will be down. Stats can uh, lean to that direction. They lowered the uh, the production to 18.6 million, so that's uh, uh, a bit of a drop, lower end of what most people were guessing. So, uh, end of the day, um, Stats Canada is always second guessed. So, what will the actual number be? And the question now is how much is being overwintered, and how much that number counts. What will be harvested in the in the spring? But um, end of the day, they confirmed what uh you know farmers are definitely of the opinion that the crop was was smaller because of the poor poor harvest weather so that uh um that's the number to work with so that means there'll be probably tighter ending stocks still pretty huge historically speaking so what that means for prices remains to be seen the canola futures didn't really do too much in response they're still uh they're off their nearby lows. They did see some modest strength in relation to the StatsCan number, but still, uh, you know, you widen out the scope of what you're looking at. Range brown, steady, uh, steady market there on canola. The um, wheat number they uh, uh, held held fairly steady on wheat production, so it's a fairly large uh, wheat wheat crop anticipated by Statistics Canada. 32.3 million tons. So that's uh, about in line with what was grown last year. And I guess we all get used to criticizing Stats Canada. It's almost like a a, a Western Canadian uh, agricultural tradition. Yes. But they have quite a tough job every year trying to guess the size of the crop using whatever methods they have. And I imagine this year they had to take more guesses than normal. Yeah, there's there was a lot of uh, of that, and there, you know, and it's depending on, you know, you have to second guess that the is the farmer telling them what they think they have or what they actually have, and you can't really know what you actually have if it's still sitting there in a field or, you know, the survey was conducted even if things that were harvested may have not been harvested when StatsCan was calling and. And, you know, the question of who wants to talk to them when they're calling and they're still busy harvesting. So, um, yeah, you're right. The question, expect revisions in subsequent reports. At least this should make the markets interesting over the winter. Yes, for sure. So USDA has also updated where uh, if things were at. 
What what's that saying to you about the coming winter months? Yeah, well, the uh, USDA they had a um, their monthly monthly report came out on December tenth, and not a whole lot of uh, changes there. They basically kept most of their numbers uh, steady with the last report, kicking the can down to uh, January. The soybeans and corn. Uh, ending stocks, uh, estimates, production, supply, demand, all that was unchanged from the past month. Wheat was the one that stood out. They lowered their uh, lowered their uh, ending stocks estimate by um, adjusting some uh, export and import numbers. Uh, so the uh, the wheat ending stocks in the U.S. now are forecast to be their tightest in the past five years. So that's uh, um, a bit bit supportive for U.S. wheat prices, so this should uh, conceivably translate uh, to a bit of firmness in Canadian cash bids. But we'll we'll see how that uh, uh, works itself out as well. And something else is lending us uh, a bit of support is the situation in Australia. Un- unfortunate for them, uh, we tend to benefit from a bit of that. Yeah, they're uh, they're. Their wheat crop uh, uh, keeps getting smaller and smaller. Back when it was planted, the uh, you know early projections were over 20, 20 some million tons. Every report since, it's been getting smaller and smaller. USDA pegged it at around sixteen million. Um, the, the Australia's own uh, own government agency they pegged it at fifteen point eight or nine, so even smaller, and that'd be uh, you know matter no matter who number whose numbers you're using, it's the smallest crop in over a decade. So they will have a lot less wheat to move on the uh, global market this year. The um, so that uh, opens the door for for other uh, other uh, exports. Because uh, you know Australia enjoys a freight advantage to many of those South Asian markets, but uh, if they don't have the wheat to move, that opens the door for Canada and the U.S. to fill some gaps. So, what do you think? Have we moved past the harvest market, at least in Canada now? Are are we into the winter market yet, or we seem to be at that kind of from one to the other period? I'd say we're we're into the uh, the winter market. The uh, you still see like uh, you know little pictures of oh someone's harvesting this or that somewhere, but I think for for you know the basically the harvest is done and uh, the cold is setting in and uh, what's there it will be there in the spring and we'll see what happens with it and yeah the tensions turning to uh, you know beyond the harvest and to what we're gonna do with the crop and. Uh, you know, all those other kind of global economic type things that'll royal things over the winter when there's the, the weather doesn't matter so much anymore. Well, here a cold winter comes. So thanks very much, Phil, for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Phil Ferenc Workington is a reporter with Markets Farm. That's all we have today on Between the Rows. Join us again next week. I'm Ed White, and I thank you for joining us. Between the Rows is a production of Glacier Farm Media, Canada's leading farm publisher. We'd love to hear what you think of the show and invite you to send your comments to etr at farmmedia.com or visit us at membersgetmore.ca and sign up today. Today.